You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. All right. Good morning. Good to see you guys. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. If we have not had a chance to, uh, to meet, I'm glad that you are here with us for whatever reason that you're here. A friend coerced you or you are interested in what God has to say about the person of Jesus and what is true about life and uh, anything in between. Any questions you have or doubts or anything we can do to help you, serve you, we would love to. We would consider it a privilege and a blessing to get to help you along, answer any questions or do anything that we can uh, to, to serve you. And so we're glad that you are here. We are in the middle of a series we're looking at the life of David. So David is a prominent figure in the Old Testament of the Bible, and we're looking at a few different scenes from David's life, and we're learning how God interacts with people, and we're taking some of the things that God does in David's life, and we're pulling those into our lives here today, and we've got a lot of work to do today, and so I want to just go ahead and hop right in and get straight to it. So if you would, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there are some on the ends of the rows in some baskets underneath the seats, and I bet a friendly person would be glad to pass one down to you while you are getting 1 Samuel 17 ready in your Bible. Let me give a little bit of setup for what we're talking about today. Today, we're going to see something that God does for David, something that God provides for David, something without which, uh, humanly speaking at least, David wouldn't make it. It is uh, at a moment when David is at, an, at a low point in his life. His life is threatened. He is uh, being threatened by an, un, an increasingly unstable king named Saul. David at one point is hiding in caves out in the wilderness. Every day his life is on the line, and God does something for David to preserve him, to help him make it through, both physically, just practically to make it through alive, but then also to make it through psychologically and emotionally, to endure when he is otherwise alone and abandoned. God provides David with something that would be easy to overlook or even dismiss. It's not flashy. It's not like when God provides in other ways in Scripture where the Red Sea just parts and there's no doubt God is at work here. It's a little more subtle. But God does something for David that's absolutely critical for David to make it. God gives David a friend right when he needs it gives him a friend. It's a friend named Jonathan, a friend without whom David would not have been able to get through this season of his life. Proverbs 18.24 summarizes for us what we'll talk about today. It says that one who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The reality is that in life, friends are absolutely critical there are all kinds of studies that even back this up. Now, I reference a ton, a Boston Globe article. Many of you who've been around for a while have heard me talk about it, where they actually linked, they link lack of friends and loneliness to health risks. And they say that if you are walking through life without friends with whom you relate closely, it is, uh, it's as great of a health risk to you as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. Friendship is central. It's critical and the reason why it's critical to our lives is because we are made in the image of God. God who is eternally existent as one God, yet three persons. So God himself exists in relationship. 
Friendship is at the very essence of God, at the very heart of the universe. Before there was a universe, there was a God who was eternally existent in relationship with himself. And God creates us in his image. When Genesis recounts how this happens, God puts the man in the garden. It's paradise. God is communing and relating perfectly to this man, and God looks at him by himself, and God says, this is actually no good. This is, this is no good. He's alone. We're going to need to fix that. In paradise, with God, and it's not enough, the first man is alone, and God says, this is outside of my created design for people because I'm designing and have designed people to need relationships with others. It's part of our design. So we're going to go in on that today. And in, at first, I would just love to encourage you that if you sense a deep need for friendship in your life, that is a good thing. I would even say that if you find yourself lonely sometimes because of how much you want deep, meaningful relationships with other people, that is not necessarily a sign that something is wrong with you. Possibly that is a sign that you are, in fact, made in God's image. Now, maybe you're lonely because something is wrong with you. But maybe it's just an expression of the fact that you're an image bearer of God. Just because you find yourself wanting better friends or more friends or closer friends, it might just be a sign that you're made in God's image. So here's the story. We're going to zoom in on the life of David and the gift of a friend that God gives David. And uh, we're not going to be able to look at the whole thing. This is a story that is placed in a few different chapters over a long period of David's life. And we're going to try to zoom in on a few of the moments where David interacts with Jonathan. We will not be able to cover all of it. I would encourage you to go read all the whole story on your own because I think you'll see even more is here than what we're able to cover. Let me give you a, a, a brief update on the story that we're catching up to just so you know the context. So David, at this point, he's been anointed as the future king, but he goes back to the pasture where he came from and he waits on God to elevate him. And David's rise to fame comes a few years later when Israel is stuck in a battle with a nation, a people group called the Philistines. And they, uh, the Philistines send out their best warrior, a man named Goliath. Many of you have heard this story. And Goliath is going to represent them in one-on-one -on -one combat. It would be winner take all. Each nation sends their best fighter, winner take all. And Goliath is taunting the people of God. He's taunting the nation of Israel. And David... Uh, shows up to bring food to his older brothers. He's not a part of the military. He brings food to his older brothers and sees that everyone's scared of Goliath, and David is confused. David says, I don't understand. Why is everybody afraid of him? He's taunting the people of God, which means he has opposed God himself. David says, just go out there and fight him. God will help you kill him. Just go take him out. And everyone stands back. No one is willing to step up, not David's older brothers, not King Saul, who we found out last week was chosen as king in part because of his size and combat ability. So David steps up, does it himself. Steps out, he kills Goliath, and quickly David will become a national hero. And we'll pick that story up in chapter 17, verse 55. As soon as Saul, Saul's the king, saw David go out against the Philistines, so he heads out to Goliath, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I don't know. Now David and Saul, have already, they already know each other. Saul's asking to be reminded of David's father because he's going to end up keeping David with him instead of sending him back home. Verse 56. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. 
And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hands. How awesome is that? He shows up. He's like, hey, King Saul, I would shake your hand, but I'm holding Goliath's head. Sorry. Verse 58, and Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Continue into chapter 18. As soon as he'd finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan, that's Saul's son, the prince, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. This idea of being knit together or being one in spirit um, it's actually used elsewhere in Scripture, Genesis 44, to describes Jacob's relationship with his son Benjamin, this idea of someone's life being closely bound up in another person's life. So what's happening here is that Jonathan, Saul's son, sees something about David through this Goliath ordeal. He sees David's faith. Jonathan knows literally anybody should have stepped up before David to kill Goliath. Literally anybody. You got the whole army. You got the king who's there. Jonathan himself is there. No one steps up. David's just bringing food to his brothers. But David sees what happens. He says enough is enough. And in faith, he steps out. He kills the giant. Jonathan sees this, and he recognizes the work of God in David's life. And he says, I'm, I'm with this guy. This is the beginning of their friendship. Verse 2. So Saul took David that day and would not let him return to his father's house. So Saul actually sees something in David as well. We're going to find out later he doesn't see the whole picture, but he knows there's something special about this David guy. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. So let's chat just real quick because there's some cultural distance there, and covenants are not something that we necessarily even have the language for. But actually what it says here is not that he made a covenant, says that Jonathan cut a covenant. So this is, uh, you know, 3,000 years ago, tons of cultural distance, but here's the concept. What they would do to have a solemn oath, a form of commitment that was binding, they would take an animal, they would kill it, they would cut it in half, they would lay the two parts to the side, and they would walk through almost like a path as they walked through this animal that had been cut in half. And when they stepped through that animal, what they were saying to each other is, if I don't keep my end of my promises, then may what happened to this animal happen to me. So this is a, a sort of life-death oath. It's a, a high level of commitment where they're literally saying to each other, I am committed to you, and if I take that back, then you may kill me just as this animal has been killed. So this is a, a strong show of commitment. And it comes at a great cost that we'll begin to see as we move through the story. Verse 4, so Jonathan then stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. So this is another thing that's, that's symbolic and can get lost in some of the translation. But here's why this is so important. Jonathan is the heir to the throne. He's the prince. He's Saul's son. And Jonathan takes the symbols of his royal position, his, his robe and his armor and his bow and his belt. He takes the symbols of his future role as king. He takes them off and he gives them to David. So the clothes signify the person and his position. And what he's doing is he's saying, I'm giving you what was supposed to be mine. As far as it's up to me, and it's not entirely up to Jonathan here, but what he's saying is, as far as it is up to me, the throne is yours, not mine. You're the next king. I'm giving up my right to it. It's a symbolic way of him denying his own birthright. Absolutely no one would have done this. 
This is completely crazy talk for the son of the king to say, I sense and see what God is up to here. I'm going to set aside my right to the throne. I'm going to actually, I'm going to hand that over to you and allow you to step in because I think you are the man that God wants to be the king. So Jonathan is committed to David. He sees that God's doing something with David. He's willing to sacrifice himself to promote God's purposes in David's life. Verse 6. And as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities in Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. How do you think King Saul is going to like the song on the radio? So Saul, remember, is appointed as king in part because of his stature, his fighting ability. This was why kings were kings and how they maintained respect and power. He's supposed to be the nation's protector. He's supposed to be the one that provides safety and security. And now we've got women writing songs and singing them everywhere about how big and strong and awesome David is compared to him. Verse 8, just as you would expect, and Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul begins to realize, I'm going to lose my power. I'm going to lose my kingdom. This guy is going to take it away from me. And this realization of what David is up to and what God is doing in David's life is starting to dawn on him. And this is where things begin to turn and go dark for David. Verse 9, and Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon him, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And he did day, as he did day by day, Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. So David's got some matrix moves, dodging spears. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul becomes deathly jealous of David. He begins to plot against him. From this point forward, Saul comes up with some overt schemes to kill David, some more covert and subtle. This one's pretty obvious. You throw a spear at somebody, they tend to pick up on what you're trying to do. If we were using modern language, we'd say that Saul is mentally ill. He's, he's unstable. Scripture actually says there's a spiritual cause to it. And this right here begins a long back and forth between David and Saul that will subsequently involve Saul and Jonathan, Saul's son. And as the story moves forward, Jonathan attempts to be a mediator between his father and David. He steps in for his friend and tries to advocate for his friend on David's behalf. He tries to convince Saul. David's an honorable guy. He's trying to do the right thing. He's not against you. And Saul tells Jonathan he'll leave David alone. But then he secretly continues to try to kill him. And eventually, the whole thing comes to a head, and Jonathan realizes that Saul is still trying to kill David, and Saul realizes that Jonathan knows what he's up to, and the situation explodes. It's a couple of chapters later in chapter 20. So flip over to 1 Samuel chapter 20, and we'll pick it up in verse 30. Just trying to give you the broad strokes here this morning. There's plenty that we skipped over that you might go back and read. 
But at this point where we're picking it up, Saul has continued to try to kill David. Now Jonathan realizes, and that Saul realizes that Jonathan realizes. So everything's out in the open. Verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Okay, potty mouth. You, uh, the, the ESV pretties up the language a little bit, but you don't have to be a Hebrew scholar to pick up on what he's actually saying. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame? Saul says, you, you picked our enemy, our family's enemy, and I know it now. I know it. This guy's after our throne, our kingdom. He's trying to supplant us, and you're partnering with him. That's why Saul is popping off. He says, you've, you've chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness as, for as, as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth. Neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. You have to kill David if you want to get to be the king, Jonathan. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. So Saul is outraged. He can't believe that Jonathan would forfeit his rights as the son of the king. He can't believe that Jonathan would trade his own kingdom to align with David. Saul throws the spear at Jonathan. Catch that now. How did Saul come after David earlier? With a spear. Jonathan has so identified with David that the threat, the danger, the obstacle in David's life now becomes his own. Jonathan gets treated by his father the way that his father treated David. So David's troubles are now Jonathan's troubles, quite literally. He's so grieved for David that he's angry. He says he doesn't eat. This is a very tragic moment for Jonathan when the full cost of his allegiance to David begins to come to the surface because his fidelity to David and God's purposes are now starting to cost him in his relationship with his dad. Verse 35. So in the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. So what we skipped over when we skipped forward to chapter 20 was that David and Jonathan made up a sort of code by which Jonathan would tell David whether or not Saul was still going to come after him and still was trying to kill him. And the appointment that just got mentioned in verse 35 was where Jonathan was going to send that coded message to David because they weren't sure if they would get to communicate and other people would be around. Verse 36, And he said to his boy, Run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. That was the coded message. If he shot it past where the boy was, that was Jonathan telling David, Saul is still after you. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow behind you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master, but the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from the place behind the stone heap, so the coast was clear. They were, in fact, able to talk. David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. Bowing in the ancient Near East was about deference, for someone to bow three times is the highest superlative of deference. This is David humbling himself in front of Jonathan. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most, because David knows all that it's costing Jonathan for him to be his friend. 
just imagine if your if your best friend stuck with you and it comes to a point where you realize it's costing them everything that they previously cherished. That's that's the moment that we're seeing right here. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we've sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. So Jonathan says, hey, no matter what position my dad takes towards you, God is between us and our offspring. That's not changing. He, he calls David to trust God's promises. So David leaves. David spends another portion of his life being chased down by Saul. Fast forward, and we'll look at the last interaction that David and Jonathan have. It's another time where David is in trouble in chapter 23. So skip forward again just a few chapters here. Look at verse 15. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. And I will be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. And David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. So Jonathan goes out to encourage David. says he strengthened his hand in God. He reminds him of God's promises. He says, I know it doesn't look like it right now, but God's going to do what he promised. You keep your head. God's got this. That's the last interaction in Scripture between David and Jonathan. From the very beginning, when David's troubles start, All the way to the very end here, Jonathan is along, he steps in, he encourages him, he strengthens him, he gets him out of trouble, he goes between Saul and David as this sort of mediator to try to navigate their relationship. It really is, it's a beautiful narrative picture of the gift of a friend, and it is in part, at least humanly speaking, why David is able to make it through this season of his life. And I, and I just read over a, a part of it just to get the, the overall narrative arc. There are some, uh, there's some more things in there. And that there's, there's just something, I mean, I was just so struck by it even just this week, studying over it more and kind of clarifying what I wanted to talk about today. There's something so moving about depictions of friendship. I don't know if you ever thought about it. Like, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the, with the show Band of Brothers, so it is a uh, sort of a retelling, dramatized of a group of men who fought in World War II, and it shows some of the different things that they went through together and how they were connected, different fights, different scenes, and at the very end of that uh, series, and it's based on a true story loosely, but at the end of the series, they have, and then spiced throughout, they have the men today, older, talking about their memories, and the, and the show actually ends as they talk about the love and respect they have for the other men that they fought alongside of all those years ago. And I have watched that show along with some very, very tough, hardened gentlemen and seen people in the room crying as these older war veterans talk about how much they love these other men, how much they respect them as they recount these stories. There's just something that grips us when we see beautiful pictures of friendship, when we see people committed to each other, in it for the long haul, no matter what, having each other's back, people who go through the ups and downs of life. There's something very beautiful about it. Something in us aches for those kinds of friendships. We just, we just connect to it. I was listening to a sermon recently 
um, by a pastor that I, that I like to learn from, and he was talking about friendship. And at one point, his words were, because we have such a mobile society today, people come and go at a speed that outpaces our ability to forge friendships. So he says, people come and go so quickly that it doesn't allow us the time to really build meaningful, deep, significant friendship. And so he said his words, so our hearts do not have all the friends that they need. And he said that phrase, and I'm just sitting there listening to him, and there's a part of me that's like, I don't, I don't have all the friends my heart needs. You're right. I don't have all the friends. And I was thinking about even Columbia and our setting and and Columbia being the sixth most transient city in America, according to one very obscure study. <laughs> and I just think about all the people that I've cared so much about who aren't here anymore. If I go to Greenville or Charlotte or Charleston, there are more Midtown people there than there are here. And there's a part of me that's so grateful that we get to send out people the way that we do. I really am. I really am grateful for it. And there's a part of me where it just crushes me. Because people come and go at a rate that's impossible to actually forge the kind of friendships that we need. And I just got, I was just like hosting a pity party for myself in my office this week as I listened to this guy talk about how I don't have all the friendships that my heart needs. And you know what's crazy is I actually have great friends. <laughs> I have great friends here, like people that I've, that I've walked alongside of for getting close to 20 years now. I helped start this church with people I went to college with, in part because we didn't want to stop being friends doing ministry together. I actually have awesome friends. There's just something about the topic that makes hosting a pity party for yourself incredibly easy. Not to mention some of us genuinely don't have all the friends that our hearts need. And so I was just thinking about this sermon and what I wanted to say to you guys. Um, and just, man, the fact that even for, for those of us, as you know, as you age, friendships get more difficult. You have kids and everything gets more complicated. I heard one guy say recently one of Jesus' most neglected miracles was that he had 12 close friends while he was in his 30s. <laughs> A miracle. So here's what I don't want to happen. I'm disinterested in you weaponizing this sermon and heading to life group this week, you walk in and you point your finger at everyone and you say, you're not a good enough friend to me. You're no Jonathan, and you are no Jonathan. Uh, if for nothing else, because if you go in saying that, they will rightly turn it back on you and say, and you are not David. So what I would love to do with the last 10 to 15 minutes that we have is instead of pointing our finger at other people and how they are probably not as good of friends as we need them to be, which I'm not even taking from you, they probably aren't, I would, instead, I would instead rather do something a little more hopeful and definitely more productive and think about whether or not we are always the kinds of friends that other people need for us to be, because that is something we can control. We cannot control how other people treat us. We can control how we treat them. Uh, my good friend, Chris Kakaris, one of our executive pastors, when he's talking to his kids, and they come over and they say, so-and-so's not being nice. They're not being a good friend. He always says, hey, I cannot, I cannot tell you that other people will always be a good friend to you. I can't make that promise. But what I'll tell you is if you'll focus on being a good friend to other people, 
probably for the rest of your life, you will have good friends in your life. I can't promise it, but that's the best way to go about doing it. That's good counsel for a five-year-old or for a 55-year-old or however old you are in the room. So here's what I want to do. We do not have a ton of time. Uh, I wish that we had more time for me to break apart all these different things that we could observe about David and Jonathan's friendship because it's just loaded. There's tons of things here. What I want to do is give you five observations that stand out to me about their friendship, and we'll just use these as categories for us to do a little bit of self-examination and see how we can grow in being good friends to others. So again, I'm just going to I'm just going to just strike the surface of these. We're not going to get into all the depth of it. I don't even have time necessarily to go back into the story and show you every little bit and piece of where we're pulling these out. I just want to be able to give you these categories and be brief. And so here's number one, just five things that stand out to me, observations about friendships that we can glean from David and Jonathan. Number one, friendships require a foundation. Friendships require a foundation. The best friendships come when it's more about more than just friendship. One of the things that, that stands out, and the writer of Samuel wants it to stand out, is that David and Jonathan are both committed to what God is doing in the world. That's their common ground, and that's what their friendship is built around. Is in some respects, the text is actually saying something about, about discipleship, not just friendship. It's about what it looks like to follow God and align ourselves with his purposes over and above everything else. But if you'll remember, what initially draws Jonathan to David is the work of God that he sees in his life. And what he emphasizes over and over again is the work of God in David's life and God's promises. And what drives Jonathan's friendship with David is Jonathan's faith in God. The friendship is built around the foundation of God. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller talks about this concept this way, this idea that friendships require some kind of a foundation. He says, friends come from what you're in love with. They happen with people who are most in love with the same thing that you are in love with. As a result... That is one of the reasons why a lot of people have very few friends. He goes on to say that if you want nothing but approval, if you want nothing but friends, you'll never have any friends because friendship is always about something besides friends. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, has a killer quote on this. Here's what he says. This is why those pathetic people who simply want friends can never make any. Just so we're clear, I am not calling you pathetic. I would never do that. This is C.S. Lewis who called you pathetic. So that's, that's totally different. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. Where the truthful answer to the question, do you see the same truth, would be, I see nothing. And I don't care about the truth. I only want a friend. No real friendship can arise. There would be nothing for the friendship to be about. Those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. We, uh, we should have learned this lesson when we were on the playground when we were little. How do you make a friend on the playground? You don't walk up to another kid like, you want to be my friend? You go to another kid and you say, you want to play tag? You want to play ball? Tetherball? Best friends come from tetherball. <laughs> it's always about something else. Friends are people that you stand side by side with looking at the same thing doing the same thing. This is why generally it's easier to form friendships around hobbies and interests. Oh, you like football. I do too. That's great. Oh, you pull for that team. Me too. And affinity can certainly bring people together somewhat. Usually it's not deep enough to root or anchor a friendship for the long haul because affinity changes and life stages shift 
And when friendship is based off of those things, it tends to come and go. But when it comes to David and Jonathan, they actually have a foundation that allows them to connect past surface and circumstance. So Jonathan is royalty. David is a shepherd. Jonathan would actually have been a good bit older than David based on the timeline of Saul's reign. Jonathan is the heir to the throne. David is his replacement. So in any respect, they kind of should have been enemies. If you expect anything of their friendship, it would be that they would actually be enemies and not friends. But God unites them. And that is a secret sauce of Christian friendship. There is no one who is off limits, no one where friendship can't possibly be formed. Because it's not just about affinity or life stage. It's not about shared Myers-Briggs or Enneagram numbers. When you align yourself with God's purposes in the world, it allows you to align with God's purposes in others. And now anyone can be a friend. Number two, friendship is built through commitment. It's built through commitment. We talked about how David and Jonathan have this covenant with one another, how they continually express their commitment to each other. So here's the reality. Most people that you know and you want to know, you know them because they're useful to you. And most of the people who know you <laughs> know you because you are useful to them. Some other people are useful to you for having a good time. They're useful for making you feel better about yourself. They're useful for meeting other people. They're useful for getting things done. But friendship cannot thrive when it only serves a utilitarian purpose. Because when life gets hard and things begin to cave in, people who you only know because they are useful will no longer be around for you because you are no longer useful for them. A friend, however, is there. Because a friend has not made you a means to an end. You are an end in yourself. A friend is someone you can count on, who you know you can rely on even if your life falls apart. That's a friend. Many of us have gone through something in our lives where everything fell apart and the people we thought we would look up and find standing around us, walking with us through it, are nowhere to be found. Those were not real friendships. And many of you have experienced this. To turn the lens on ourselves with this, some of you are too unreliable and too inconsistent to be a true friend to others because we never know what we're going to get from you. One season, you're there. You're in it with us. We're encouraging each other. We're sharing life together. The next season, you're just gone. You don't communicate anymore. You're not around. We don't know what's going on. You're a total mystery to us. You're unreliable. You're inconsistent. Some of you just rotate friend groups. And every season of life, you've got a different group of friends that you're rotating through. Friendships are built through commitment. Let's keep moving. Number three, friendships require unity. Friendships require unity. This is something that, that jumped out to me. And when I say unity, I mean friends actually know each other. They, they communicate what they're thinking and they're feeling to each other. They're not mysteries. And they share life's experiences together, the ups and the downs. There's a unity there. There's a we know each other and we're going through this together unity. I, it just pops off the page to me. We read it earlier. In chapter 20, David sees Jonathan. They're on the field. Jonathan's just communicated to him that Saul's still after him. David walks up to him. He bows. Remember, he bows three times. And it says, and they kissed one another and wept with one another. David weeping the most. I was thinking about for guys especially. I don't know exactly when this happened or why it happened, but somehow 
gentlemen, we began to believe in our culture that there was something about being known, about expressing what you are thinking and what you are feeling. There's something about hugging and crying that is unmasculine and maybe even feminine. I don't know when that started or why that started, but I even read this with David and, you know, read, they hugged and they kissed and cried and it's like, all right. You know, I mean, I wouldn't say that out loud ever in a public setting. I just, it does kind of read kind of like, okay. I was listening to somebody recently who had an insight, thought it was interesting. He said, you know, this happens elsewhere in Scripture. Like in Acts chapter 20, Paul is meeting with the Ephesian elders. He knows it's the last time he's going to see them before he heads to Rome. He's going to get put in prison. And it says the exact same thing. It says that Paul meets with these men, and it says they hug, they kiss, they cry. Sort of a pattern in the Bible of men who really care about each other, hug, kiss, cry. And he said, I can't help but wonder if part of the reason there was a freedom to do that is, you know, back then, men knew they were tough. They had to fight to save their village all the time. They were always going off to battle. Wild animals would attack, and you got to kill that thing with your bare hands or with a knife that you just whittled out of wood. Those are your options, or your family dies. So he said men back then had no question about their toughness. Their toughness was proven every single day. So when it came time for friendship, they didn't have anything to hide. They knew they were tough so they could actually express what was going on on the inside of them. Men today, we're not at all sure that we're tough. We very much question our own toughness. And so we put up a front of we don't want to be known. We want to stay a mystery. We don't want to expose ourselves. And I will not speak for the rest of you, but when I heard that, I thought, well, I do that. That's for sure. That's for sure. David and Jonathan here, there's an expression of love for each other that honestly I think a lot of us, especially men, would be uncomfortable with. But the point to be drawn is that a friend is someone you let your guard down with. You don't dress up, not for a real friend. A friend is someone you can think out loud with, someone who's not a mystery to you, someone you feel good about expressing what you're thinking and what you're feeling, someone you go through life's up and downs with. You're together in it. It's somebody who you can rely on, who will be there. Someone who makes the highs even better and the lows not quite as bad. And I would just add as a tag, for those of you who are married, just because you are married does not mean you are friends with your spouse. There are a lot of people who are married who are not actually friends with their spouse. I think it is one of the biggest undiagnosed problems with marriage in America You think about all the different marriage books, and they're all about how to get the romance back, how to spice up your sex life. This is going to fix what's wrong with your marriage. And you know, romance is good, and spicy sex sounds awesome. I don't even know what that is, but it sounds great. (laughs) But, But part of what is missing, part of what is missing in many people's marriages is you're not friends with your spouse. You're mysteries to each other. You're not actually going through life together. You're just parallel in the same house. You're not going through ups and downs in the same way. You're not known by them, and you're not unified. Got to keep moving. Number four, friendships are reciprocal. Friendships are reciprocal. You can look at this later, but in chapter 20, verses 14 and 15, Jonathan actually asks David. So we've looked a lot at Jonathan's sacrifice on David's behalf. In chapter 20, 14 through 15, Jonathan actually asks David to protect his house. When David becomes the king, he says, Jonathan asks David, Will you please protect my house? Now, here's why that's such a huge deal. Because in, uh, in ancient civilizations, when there was a regime change, the first thing the new regime did was kill everybody from the house of the old regime. Right? you got to protect your, your place. 
And anybody descended from the old regime's family is a potential threat to rise up and lay claim to the throne. And David does, in fact, protect Jonathan's family. And in doing so, he opens himself up to all kinds of danger and future consequences in this friendship. So it's not just Jonathan who's sacrificing for David. There's a reciprocity here. There's a give and take here. I bring this up because some of you have relationships where you are always giving. You are always pouring in. There are people like this in my life where if we hang out, it's because I asked if they would want to hang out. If someone gets encouraged, it's because I'm encouraging them. If someone serves, it's because I am serving them. Those are called ministries. And ministry is a good thing. A one-way relationship where someone is pouring into the other person is a ministry. You need ministry. The Bible says there's a blessing for those of us who are pouring out in ministry. But that is a different kind of blessing than the blessing that comes through friendship where there is a give and there is a take. You need both of them in your life. You need ministry, where you are mostly the one pouring out, and then you need friendship, where there's give and take, and there's back and forth, and there's reciprocity. Some of you only know how to give, and you do not know how to receive from someone else and let them be a friend to you. Others of you only know how to take, and you do not know how to actually begin to pour back in to someone else. For there to be a friendship, there's got to be reciprocity. And then here's the last thing, number five. What we actually need is an eternal friend. We need an eternal friend. So Jonathan, eventually at the end of the story here, he leaves David. He goes home. This is the last time that they see each other. The next time we hear from Jonathan, he actually dies alongside his father in battle. Jonathan is not the ultimate presence that David needs. He gets him through that season. He's a, a beautiful gift in David's life for a season. But for all the promises that Jonathan makes to David, there was one he couldn't make. Jonathan could not promise David that he would be with him forever. And that's what you need. You need a friend who will be with you forever. So there's this place in John chapter 15. Jesus is headed to the cross. And he turns to his disciples in verse 15, and Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I've heard from my Father I've made known to you. Jesus invites them to consider him their friend. Jesus is a friend to you, even when it costs him. In fact, it cost Jesus his life to be your friend. Jesus, like Jonathan, endured the wrath of his father that was reserved for you. Jesus set aside his kingdom privileges, his divine rights as the eternal son of God. He set all of it aside to condescend, to humble himself to death on a cross. Jesus gives up his kingdom so that you can receive his inheritance. He is the kind of friend that you truly need, someone who gets you, someone who really knows you, who knows what you're thinking and feeling even better than you know it yourself, someone who's always for you and not just with you sometimes and not others. You need a friend you can weep with and celebrate with, someone who experiences your ups and downs as if they were their own. You need a friend that's infinite. You need a friend that, can, that you can go to about anything at any time, that's always available, we need a friend that's willing to overcome all the difficulties that are associated with being in a relationship with us and never stop pursuing us in spite of our sin. You need an eternal friend who will never leave you, never forsake you, 
never let you down, and Jesus is the eternal friend that we need. I want to end and lead us into a song. It's a song that, honestly, until recently, as a confession, I have always found a little cheesy, but I'm going to invite you to not allow it to go into the corny, cliche part of your brain as we sing it together, and instead reflect on the beauty of it. Part of what changed my mind about the song was that I recently found out the origin of the song. It's a song written by a man named Joseph Scriven. He was born in 1819 in Ireland. Eventually, he was in Canada. And throughout Joseph's life, there were two separate times where he was engaged and his fiance died before they were married. So he was incredibly familiar with pain and sorrow and loneliness and despair. And later in Joseph's life, he got news that his mother on the other side of the world was sick and was dying. And he knew he was not going to be able to get there in time to see her again or to be with her. And he heard that his mother was incredibly lonely because her son was not able to be there with her. And he drew on all of his years of experience walking through pain and tragedy and sorrow as he reflected on his dying mother who was lonely. And he wrote this poem that eventually was turned into a song that Christians have sung for over 150 years now. But here are the, the words of the poem that Joseph wrote to his lonely mother on the other side of the world. He says, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. What needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. You have some time to reflect this morning and sing together, remembering the blood-bought gift that Jesus is our eternal friend, the ones that our hearts actually need. We'll take communion as we remember what it cost him to be our friend. I'm going to pray for us, but I want to give you one last encouragement. Before you head to the communion table, if there is a relationship in the room that is in need of repair, why don't you go grab that person and talk to them. Be reconciled. If you need to go outside and discuss, apologize, ask for an apology, discuss, deal with it so that you're reconciled, so that you can come back into the room and step to the communion table back in right relationship with each other. Our family relationships in Christ are too valuable for, let, for us to allow things to remain between us. So let's deal with any relational issues we have in the room. Let's reflect and remember that Jesus is our friend. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. He's our God. He's our King. Yes, absolutely. And he's our friend. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for this beautiful truth. Thank you for uh, the life of David and for Jonathan. God, thank you for providing Jonathan for David, both for his sake, but but also for ours, that we could learn from their example and we could get to see a picture of what a friendship is, and then even more importantly, that we could see an example of the kind of friend that you are to us. 
that I will not presume to know where everyone in the room is at on this. I'm sure that some of us have lives that are overflowing with good, beautiful friendships, and other of us feel incredibly alone. Maybe we haven't even thought about it, but now we realize we're alone. And so just ask that you'd meet us here, God, by your spirit, that you'd minister to us, that you would draw us to yourself to find our rest in you, to find our friendship in you, and that you would help us to focus on growing to be the kind of friend that other people need. And in that pursuit, Lord, would you faithfully provide us with the friends that we need. And we ask this for your glory and our good. Amen.